0: Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kakis-Wolf.
1: Sunil, when was the last time you went on a trip anywhere?
0: Uh, anywhere? I, I think I went to somewhere for winter break, but I, memory is failing me right now.
1: And I bet when you were planning your trip... The first thing you didn't look for was the hotel room you were going to stay in. You looked for where you might book an Airbnb. Uh,
0: Actually, you're going to learn something about me today. As much a technology enthusiast as I am, I have never stayed in an Airbnb.
1: Really? Wow. Well, we we have a pretty cool discussion today where a big part of the uh, the conversation with Corey uh,
0: focused around an area that he covers and a company he covers, Airbnb. Corey Weinberg is a technology reporter here in the Bay Area, and his focus um, has been the housing crisis and Airbnb. And he also covers some other subjects, but he is really known for being one of the foremost experts in the Bay Area about the housing crisis. I think before this conversation, I didn't really realize
1: the complexity of what is happening at Airbnb um, specifically the employees that are there and the equity that they have and some of the pressures that it's putting on them. I think it's just a completely eye-opening discussion that way.
0: We talked to Corey, who reports for the information about Airbnb and you know what coronavirus might do for their IPO plans. Yeah,
1: I think this is a cool and wide-ranging discussion, not just Airbnb, but how we think about reporting. And I think one of the biggest enigmas in the Bay Area, even though it's not a Bay Area organization, that's SoftBank.
0: Yeah, this is you'll you'll uh, you'll enjoy this interview if you're uh, if you're into any of those subjects and more. Enjoy. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, enduring this tiny little closet with us over the course of the next half hour. We appreciate it. It's a pleasure. There are purple purple walls. Right, it's it's kind of nice that way. Yeah, you have the
0: uh, the distinction of being the the second. Reporter from the information that we've interviewed. Sorry, and you're not the first.
2: No, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, you've also interviewed our inter- third person from the information because Sam Lesson is technically the information's intern. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, number True. three.
1: Well, I mean, third time is the charm. Yeah, that's what I thought. Or is a charm? That what is that? What's that? How's that saying go? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So a question for you. Are you from here? Are you from San Francisco? Absolutely not. I am from (laughs) uh, what some people
2: call the worst state in the United States, which is Florida. Uh, I don't consider it to be the worst state, although I was itching to get out. Can Uh, I just
1: say for a second, interrupt you, you're now the third person who has been a guest on this podcast, all three sequentially, who have all been from Florida. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Who who else?
0: Justin Forsett, who's an NFL running back. Okay. Uh, who was an NFL running back, now an entrepreneur, and then uh, Tony Hale from Oh, sure, yeah.
1: Oh, interesting. Also Floridians. Uh, yeah, I'm from South Florida.
2: I'm I'm from a little town called Tequesta, which is near jupiter which is where bob craft was uh busted for uh, sort of going into the wrong
0: yeah uh, what salon. was that place
2: called the four seasons or something <laughs> yeah it was not the four seasons but uh, it, it was it was a strip mall which i spent some time in for because uh, it had a good like diner
1: type of place not not for any uh, shenanigans going on uh in in the conversations we've had about florida there hasn't always been a straight path to california so i'm really curious for you like is, was there any point in time as you're growing up in south florida hanging out with Robert Kraft, yeah. that you were like, I know that for me to be happy, I'm going to need to end up on the West Coast, in particular San Francisco. Was that ever a thing?
2: No. Uh, moving to the West Coast was not part of the life plan necessarily. I went to college in Washington, D.C. And, yeah, it is fairly typical for people interested in media and journalism. There's a lot of stuff happening on the East Coast if, if you want to stay there. Um, a lot of media jobs Um Generally, there. Um, I mean, San Francisco. I visited here with like my family in high school, and uh, I came out as gay in high school, and so San Francisco. And I think like the movie Milk came out when I was in high school, and so so San Francisco held this you know sort of uh, important place in sort of the uh, in my like imagination uh-huh. just because of sort of the role it's played in sort of the fight for gay rights yeah. over the over the decades. Um, It wasn't really part of the plan. That was just I moved out here for a job like a lot of other people, I feel like, who have moved out here in the last 20 years. It's not because they're chasing some California dream.
1: It's because it's where the jobs are. What what was that path? Did you feel like you had to move out here for a job?
2: No. I I mean, I was looking. I, I had sort of a temp reporting job at Bloomberg after college over the summer. I was in New York. That ended, and I was looking for a full time reporting gig, and I got linked up with the fine folks at a lovely publication called the San Francisco Business Times. Mm. Uh, and I had studied economics in college and wanted to generally go into business reporting and cover how business and people, you know, kind of intersect and. Uh, the Business Times uh, had a job opening to cover commercial real estate and housing in San Francisco, and I really didn't know anything about that topic, but it sounded like it would be pretty interesting um, and worth moving out here for.
0: Yeah, you you were one of the the people that have, like you have a really unique view into into housing, and uh, not just because of your coverage of Airbnb, but your previous work and so. I mean, would you say you're one of the foremost experts on housing crisis in San Francisco at this point?
2: <laughs> at this point, there's there's probably too many of those for me to consider myself and, uh, myself the foremost expert. I mean, I enjoyed covering it a lot, and and you do, you know, the thing I love about journalism, or one of the many, is that you do end up becoming a subject matter expert, or at least you can play one on TV in a fairly short amount of time, um, and you get to know sort of the the smart people in in sort of the right circles to talk to, to ask dumb questions to, um, and sort of feel your way around a topic. But no, I mean, like the Bay Area is, is, you know, a crisis, a great crisis uh, will bring great expertise in a way and draw a lot of attention to the crisis. So uh, I just interviewed Connor Doherty, a New York Times reporter on the Information's own podcast. Great article he he wrote for the Times. Yeah, yeah, and he had a book out on the topic. There's, you know, a, a bunch of, of of journalist Kim Cutler who used to be at TechCrunch has really established herself as a sort of authority on the housing crisis but um you know I I liked I you know I I, I like to to think that I can I can play are we doomed yeah we're, we're pretty doomed I think I mean <laughs> if you um I, I just if you I, I'm fairly pessimistic on sort of the the state of California housing is—I I don't really think there's any way else you can be. I guess you know to to use sort of a tech lingo, the bull case for California housing are you know is that there is sort of this uh, momentum around uh, this political momentum, particularly in the Bay Area, that says that um, there's more political will now for just generally building more housing, which you know the the hope is that if you build more that will, uh, at least sort of temper the crisis. Um, the problem is that, that good, that political will hasn't necessarily translated broadly enough across the state and in Southern California to create huge legislative change. Um, the thing that bums me out just about the housing crisis though, is like, it means San Francisco isn't necessarily a fun place to live. Not that it's just an unaffordable place to live. It's a, it's a monoculture, you know, it, You know, I I think about moving to places like L.A. and New York, which are also expensive, but definitely feel more diverse, more interesting. Um, And I feel like that's going to be the that's more people are kind of going to come to the same conclusion.
0: Well, let's let's. Dig right into some of your reporting because I want to ask you a bunch of profound questions here. So profound, profound. Well, no, I I can't call my own questions profound. That was that was really bad. <laughs> I do all the
2: time. You can totally. do <laughs> Oh, that. I like it. I it was, like this. That I that's good. Go
0: there was no self awareness there, but I'll <laughs> retract that. Um. Okay. All right. Twenty years from now, mm-hmm. Airbnb. Yeah. What is the legacy of the company?
2: Oh, interesting um uh, 20 i oh god i you, i don't think you can make projections 20 years out but um i don't know i i think that it'll be in, it'll certainly I it'll certainly be interesting to see if their advantage that they have current their business advantage that they have currently which was they were the first company to really build this network of people that would offer their apartments up for Rent to short-term travelers, and that sort of first-mover advantage built this bigger travel brand that they're really now trying to execute on and establish. You know, I I think if you hear all the rhetoric that the company and executives have been really been using over the last several years, it is: we are not just a homes accommodations platform; we are sort of building the end-to-end travel platform and right now that 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 right now that is still a dream that is still a uh like a lot of silicon valley companies it has nailed product market fit on its first uh first product and that that level of execution on that product means that a lot of people are going to get pretty wealthy this year when they go public it's Mm -hmm. you know uh, that's a 30 billion dollar company right there just on kind of that initial vision but brian chesky has said over and over again though is like it's I, you know, basically the implication is it would be a failure of Airbnb. Is just that you know he wants to get into flights and and experiences and really build up those those business lines. And that's where like the interesting story is for Airbnb right well, now. Well, in
0: your view, um, do you think Airbnb has been a net positive, net neutral, or net negative so far?
2: That's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, I'm going to do the typical reporter hem ha type of thing and, and kind of say it depends on who you talk to. Um, uh, I think that the, the negatives are certainly that in certain neighborhoods in and in certain cities, you know, it has only intensified the pressures around housing costs and intensified the pressures around over tourism. They're not the only company doing this. I think cheap flights to Europe do this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, and certainly now they're not the only player in this sort of apartments, accommodation sort of game. Um, and, you know, recently we've seen a lot of, uh, real problems in Airbnb homes. You, you have to wonder, is, is the company not doing enough to really guard its platform and, and sort of protect, uh, you know, their, their users and, and their hosts, uh, so that would be the net. That would be the negative side. I mean, the the positive side would be that a lot of millennials like me have been able to travel for a lot cheaper than they would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they they, you know, like I'm only now I'm 28 and and only now kind of like starting to spend money enough where it's like okay, like maybe I'll stay in a hotel this time, <laughs> like a mid like a mid-range hotel. Airbnb really like that would be most of the way I would travel because that was just usually the cheapest option and and you'd get the most bang for your buck though
1: I got a question for both of you um, when when we think about companies that started in Silicon Valley with one product that was a lightning strike success right like the core platform yeah. of Airbnb like h- can you think of any that have had additional hits on top of that that they've grown organically like does that happen I mean I, I like yeah I mean Airbnb. yeah I mean
2: uber and uber eats I mean they're they're obviously Losing a lot of money, but they built that into a big business. You know, what I don't know enough about it to, to say whether it's particularly differentiated, but that one um springs to mind. Yeah.
1: Sunil? So Facebook. Facebook. I mean, but
2: Facebook. through acquisition. But they not yeah. I yeah. think that's the question is can they Yeah, I think know, it's really c- difficult, right? I like think when,
1: when you're successful with a business to be able to create other inertia inside of an organization to make other businesses successful. Totally,
2: cuz if you think of the way that Airbnb first grew, it grew off of basically hacking the system. It, it was, you know, there there's been a lot written like in uh, Bradstone wrote a, a, a Bloomberg wrote a book about Airbnb and Uber's origin stories back in the day called The Upstarts and and he really write, you know, writes about how um uh basically they created these sort of systems so that Airbnb listings would be Uh, cross-listed off of craigslist and they would acquire a lot of users that way and it was just this kind of hacky mindset that every startup gets into and and now when you see them launching new product lines like experiences it's very it's kind of more curated it's kind Mm -hmm. of more high-end it seems like okay who is your customer now and how are you actually building this and so you know i do wonder if just it's natural that you know you kind of lose your your um your edge, your scrappiness in a way. I, it, yeah, I, I think that's a very real thing.
0: We're sitting here in February and you're saying, you know, Airbnb, $30 billion company. We also have the looming threat of coronavirus. Um, and what we've seen in past downturns is travel takes a massive hit. Um, does Airbnb hold back its plans or is it, when? when is your uh, guesstimated date here of IPO?
2: You sound like my editor. Um, uh, <laughs> no, these are the exact questions we're sort of, We're sort of trying to figure out. Um, No. So, yes, you are correct. The coronavirus is hitting Airbnb's business. It's hitting every travel company's business. Booking Holdings, which owns a very large company called Booking.com, which is like the major accommodations reservation site. It's based in Amsterdam. Not as many people know what it is in the U.S., but it's the largest travel platform, um, it's Airbnb's biggest rival. They just reported their earnings today and they gave guidance for the first quarter that said their revenue would be down by like eight percent or something uh-huh. uh, year over year. And that, you know, that's a that's a big that's a big hit for that kind of company. And and that's they, o- they only started seeing negative bookings, uh, sort of starting this past week and they're projecting next month for them to just be slammed because it's the virus is spreading. So I think in any in any other case I mean, the other threat for Airbnb is at the Olympics. Um, you know, if that's canceled, that that's yeah. another huge hit. And, and Airbnb is the main sponsor of the Olympics this year.
1: I was listening to the radio yesterday, and they were talking about the the governing body for the Olympics saying, if it doesn't happen in Japan, it's not happening, period. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no backup location.
2: Yeah. No, I and, and obviously, uh, sometimes, you know, obviously a, a global pandemic happening, uh, the, the least of our worries is... What's the fate of Airbnb's? You mean um, we can't host it in San Francisco? It'd uh, be wonderful here. We're
1: almost ready, Sanil. We, <laughs> yeah. we almost have the infrastructure. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, that's another of my favorite topics: the lack of uh, sort of faith in uh, local government that that we have. Um, but no, with with Airbnb, they they kind of have to go public this year. At least that's my sense. They have uh, they started issuing restricted stock units um, to their employees in 2014, and those have a seven year uh, sort of expiration date. They le- like the IRS proclaims that if you issue your employees, RSUs rather than options, um, uh, you know, then you have to have some sort of expiration on them. And that expiration I believe is February, 2021. So, uh, wow. I, happen. I,
0: I learned something today about startups that I, that I didn't know. I didn't know we've never issued RSUs at previous companies, always yeah. options. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and the, I mean, the options generally have like a 10-year mm-hmm. cliff, I think. And so, this is these are, Airbnb fits into, is it, really one of the first companies, because they've waited, I think, 12 years to go public, <laughs> you know, this is a, a new reality in startup land, right? Like, everyone used to go public after five years or so. And the concept of RSUs and the seven-year expiration date was imagined uh, sort of around when Facebook and Twitter went public. And no one was thinking that a company would wait this long secondary market secondary market
0: yeah well uh i i let secondary is the first thing to go away when there's a downturn yeah Uh, so it seems like that that's not working out for a lot of companies Mm -hmm. um all right so so airbnb we're not sure if it's going to go public but likely will because of this rsu thing yeah you kind of you kind of pled the fifth on whether it's been a net positive or in that negative for society you played both sides a little bit i thought you did that pretty well i'll admit
2: thank you. you you gotta you know you gotta make sure you're not seen by the companies you're covering as having it out for them although you know you 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 pick your what you'd like to pick your spots through reporting you sure. know if you can if you can report out an issue and point to specific problems that's that's what we try to do but it's gotta be it's gotta be backed
0: well, we assume because we had Elliot Brown here earlier, as you know, uh, about WeWork. We assume that there'll be a, a Corey Weinberg Airbnb book at some point. Is that a fair assumption? No, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I There's so many company books coming out. Just go right straight now to that, a TV show.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, yeah. I'm just using the book as the lore to get the TV show, to get the podcast, to get the, I don't know, the AR experience. That's where the money is. <laughs> uh, it's in the a- the Airbnb AR experience. No, I don't know. I mean, I I think we're def. I'm definitely interested in like different narrative formats. I'm like fascinated by this boom in sort of the podcasting industry right now. I just us too. Uh, I can see. A- no, I, I I got a little glimpse of this recently. I consulted for this um, podcast that a VC backed. Podcasting company called Wondery just did on the WeWork saga. It was called We Crashed, and it just wrapped up. And, and basically, you know, they they have this really interesting formula where you know they are they kind of really quickly can produce these sort of narrative business stories. Um, and just kind of getting a glimpse into how that worked was really interesting. Um, and I think you're probably going to see more journalists like experiment with that. Um, I mean, book wise, yeah, it just seems like there's so much interest in company books right now. Uh, You know, Ellie is working on the WeWork book. I'm trying to think which ones are public and which ones aren't public. Well, the Facebook (laughs) one just came out today. Yeah, the Facebook one just came out today, but I don't know. Like, I mean, certainly if there's a good story there, there's a good story there. There's already been one and a half books written on the origins of Airbnb. Um, One and a half. uh, Well, you know, the upstarts was on Airbnb and Mm -hmm. Uber. Um, But uh, I don't know. I think it would be fun to do a, if if there were to, if I were to write a book like I definitely think like pulling more threads together on like this era in startup land would be interesting or um I gotta even something off the you know, I don't know I'm interested in a lot of other things it, it, I, what about I, a book on SoftBank yeah someone actually just brought that up to me the other day um I think there pro uh there should definitely be a very good book written about the SoftBank Vision Fund that will be that will get written just written by fund. me. Or SoftBank in general, yeah, yeah. But I think right now the in the Valley, the Vision Fund is what's kind sure. of everyone's trying to understand. I mean, SoftBank as an entity is this yeah. telecom company that you know basically has been riding off of sort of its the gains that it's made from its stake in Alibaba, and you know it, it kind of pushed the T-Mobile Sprint merger. It spun up a tech investment fund. It's yeah, it's it's a lot of different things that people are trying to understand, and there's a lot of interesting people behind it.
1: What, what's the simple way to describe them? Like, Is it really just a telco company? That, didn't they make money off of Yahoo and Yahoo Japan? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a bunch to... of
2: different parts of it. Um, I'm trying to think back to like the slides of the investor reports that they put together. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a telco company. It's a company that you know has made a lot of money off its Alibaba stake. It's, it has Yahoo Japan in there. Uh, has arm in there, um, and has sprint in there, and uh, but right now, you know, sort of the thing that's most, I guess, of the moment is SoftBank Vision Fund, which launched in 2017, and basically is the largest ever tech investment fund, and probably will be the largest ever tech investing fund because this one isn't going so well so far.
0: Well, we, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are not necessarily, you know, tech people. Uh, and so I want you to try to explain. And so, you know, for people who just read venture capital news, they might look at something like, oh, look at that startup raising $250 million. That makes no sense. Those Silicon Valley people, they're crazy. Can you explain how, like the, the bull, ca- the bull case, as you put it, for SoftBank? Why, why is the money going in to these startups? And what is the case for what SoftBank is doing is, is working or could work?
2: Well, I think what was different about SoftBank and it's important to note that they the size of the fund which was 100 billion dollars was i I believe uh, as it equaled in size all the amount of money in general in the venture capital industry the year it started. So um you're talking about like sort of the the market size doubling just with one investment fund coming in um and the premise that i think SoftBank people talked about in the beginning was uh basically all this money can create market winners you know just so for example uh there's two peer-to-peer car sharing companies one's called get around one's called turo if you put if uh, one softbank backed and that one is get around if you give them 300 million dollars that's uh money that could Dictate who wins that market. If if there if we believe that sort of startups are competing with each other and there's finite, you know, and there and there will be winners. Uh, you know, the theory is that that you know if if the SoftBank back player has more money, then they'll be the winner. Um, you know, and that and that I think we're seeing that just not play out in, in case after case. The bull case for SoftBank. I mean, the I think so far they, you know. They report sort of how the Vision Fund is doing every quarter. Um, And on paper, it kind of, it was up like 20% last year. It went down and they've, you know, they still had some pretty good exits. You know, they're up on Uber, they're up on Slack. You know, in general, the thesis was private tech investing. If you are a venture capitalist, you are generally beating the stock market. It's a good investment Mm -hmm. um, if you're able to get entry into these hot companies that are about to go IPO. Um, So that's what SoftBank people would say. And they would say that, hey, we have a bunch of good companies that um, are coming down the pike that are gonna continue to return capital, like ByteDance, which owns TikTok, and, and some others.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, the where, where, and I read the information's reporting on Brandless and followed that story pretty closely. What yeah, doesn't make sense to me is, is then, you know, putting that type of money into what appears to be not a winner take all market. Like Brandless, for context, was, uh, to our listeners, just recently shut down, was a uh, direct to consumer brand that was trying to sell essentially $3 everything, like an online dollar store. Well, you're literally competing with Target and, dollar stores and it didn't seem like they were that they were that big
2: so here's what's becoming clear recently Uh, you know i'd say over the last few months and and my colleague amir fradi and i just did a big story on this a few weeks ago um was that the pressure among soft bank partners to actually just uh make as many investments as possible and the fact that SoftBank CEO Masayoshi-san generally is the ultimate decider on whether SoftBank can make these decisions. And he, he can be kind of a whimsical decision maker. He kind of goes based on his gut, you know, in, and uh, can be very kind of Trumpian in, in that way. But, um, you know, he has a good track record. He He's made several, lo- or, you know, he's an up and down record, but he's made some good bets over the years. Um, in general, like, I think reporting, and our reporting is showing, other people's reporting is showing that the decision-making process for these investments that SoftBank Vision Fund has been making is just very flawed. So you've had at least a half dozen companies that we know have really been struggling. E- either uh, Brandless, they shut down, or some other companies like Fair, which is a car rental service, or Getaround, another car rental service, um, or WAG, dog-walking app, um, Zoom, the you know alleged... Robot pizza maker. Uh, all these companies are laying off scores of Elatched. staff, and and I think it's real. It's really um, it's painful for a lot of people. I mean, I covered the WeWork saga pretty in depth. I was competing with Elliot, you know, uh, a lot during that, and just uh, you know the the tales of. Of employees leaving so much money on the table, not just that their stock they thought their stock was going to be worth a lot, but you know a lot of these people are taking lower salaries than otherwise they could because of the promise of um, sort of a big exit and I think a lot of a lot of companies in the valley or you know a lot of companies in general play fast and loose with the facts as they're recruiting employees but I think in particular soft bank companies i I think that the, the lack of discipline that these companies had and the lack of focus on on actual profits um, led to a lot of people getting screwed. And, and that's kind of the story I'm interested in now, is, is, you know, how does the, you know, this kind of downturn in tech or just this moment of calming, this moment of companies trying to belt tighten, how does that actually impact the people who were coming into these jobs chasing the silicon valley dream and just realizing it's uh, a nightmare i don't know
0: what do you want people to know from outside silicon valley uh about the about venture capital and businesses like what's you know when you're talking to your friends from florida what (laughs) are what are one or two things that you find yourself conveying over and over again about this place
2: yeah, I mean, I mean, the the thing that's just top of mind right now is that the realization that we're not actually paying the true cost of a lot of the services that we're using, and uh, you know, we're we're paying for a lot of subsidized services. Like uh, I, uh, and you know, sort of how are we going to live? How are we going to budget? Like when companies start raising prices on us? So, I mean, in the Bay Area, you know, it affects my life. Like I don't own a car. I live in the Mission. Uh, I love kind of not having a car. I, I love relying on public transit and bike share and ride hail to, to get around. And and, and uh, I mean, I'm wanting, I mean, not to reveal sort of what I'm working on, but I had the idea the other day, like, I just, I want to go kind of uh, track over time, like, how have the cost of all these services gone up? Like, mm-hmm. how much more expensive is taking Uber? How much more expensive is getting a, a Lyft bike and a, or a scooter? Like, yeah. all these companies are 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 proclaiming to their investors like we've been losing too much money um uh, and the you know like and that so that means we have to lay people off it means we have to raise prices on customers and in general the feeling of Oh my god! These services are going to take over the world. The market is humongous. Uh, that idea of like VCs and startups chasing that that sweet, sweet huge TAM. Uh, <laughs> I think the markets for a lot of these companies are just smaller than everyone dreams yeah. of, and it's in part because they aren't charging the true price of their
1: service. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, expensive to commute. Like I commute from out of the city into the city. It took yeah. me. I took a train to a ferry this yeah. morning. I think it cost me twenty two dollars to get in. I mean, yeah, and public
2: and it's not just a tech issue. I mean, it public transit, Muni, Bart. Everyone is talking about raising fares because ridership is declining, yeah. <laughs> and which is and ridership is declining. You know, because service quality is degraded, and service quality is de- degraded because Uber and Lyft provides a much better service. Uh, it's door to door. You know, it's, This is the pessimist in you.
1: Yeah. Do you, do you like I, San Francisco?
2: I, I love San Francisco. No. Um. I mean, I, I, like I said, I sort of dislike the. I, well, okay, I think San Francisco is a, a fantastic place to live if you are, um, like me. You are fairly settled. You are, you know, sort of partnered up and not, and you have like a friend group already. I think San Francisco is really hard to move to as a young, sort of a really young professional. I think. Uh, it's hard to make friends and I think it's really hard to live in if you are a truly middle-class family. Um, if you are on the upper echelons of society, I think it's also a pretty nice place to live. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, it, the weather's great. I love San Francisco weather. Some people hate it. <laughs> um, I'm a sweater weather kind of guy. Um, but I love the city. I mean, it's just so weird and beautiful. And I don't know. Like, I I, I truly believe the Mission is also just one of the best neighborhoods in the entire world. Um, uh, the Valencia corridor is amazing. It's yeah. beautiful. And I, yeah, I just moved to sort of Eastern Mission, kind of closer to Potrero around, like, Bryant Street. And mm-hmm. it's, it, yeah, it, I really love it. It's actually, There's
1: that fantastic little restaurant like Alice. Does that sound right? Yeah, Owl's yeah, yeah.
2: well, Place. Yeah, that's on, I think that's on Valencia. But um yeah, I mean, there's actually pockets of the mission that are not completely gentrified, um, and actually have like Latino families living there, and you see kids riding around on their bikes on sidewalks, and it's you're like ten minutes from downtown. It's I don't know, it's it's lovely.
0: I want you to chime in on a couple more things before we uh, before we let you go and, uh, and Yasha ask you the 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 final question about your favorite social media follows. But one is, tell me about this whole tech versus tech journalism debate that seems to be raging every couple months on Twitter. And so for context for our listeners, this is, you know, essentially people who are technologists saying, you know, those journalists, they're, they're after us again. We're yeah. trying to do great things. And then the journalists saying, well, actually, we're just trying to hold you accountable. Uh, but then you get some controversy around like headlines that are being written. Just what's your, what's your overall take on the whole situation?
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a definitely a debate I try to steer away from on Twitter, but uh, we're in the, the safe confines of you guys and your, your many listeners. It's a safe uh, space. Right? <laughs> totally it's a safe. safe space. Um, yeah. I mean, it, tech people who make this argument can be fairly immature in that they don't quite realize the power that their companies have amassed. And, um, you know, reporters generally are attracted to writing stories that hold power to account. And... Uh, you know, if you are in Silicon Valley right now, whether you're a small scrappy startup um, that's, you know, raised a series A, you're still considered powerful. And and I think I totally appreciate the nuance. And, you know, I, I think that's why we try re- to be really thoughtful about picking our spots at the information about like, what is a story? I mean, there's a certain amount of editorial, there's a large amount of editorial judgment that needs to go into your job as a journalist. And, Um, sometimes journalists fail on that. Like if, if, if a headline is, is, you know, headline is bad or if the reporting is false or the reporting is misleading, then, you know, the, the media shouldn't be so reporters shouldn't be so sensitive about that. Um, if there are legitimate gripes, I think, um, what journalists get sort of, uh, scared of is, Traditional journalistic norms like seeking comment from a source or, um, you know, writing a skeptical story uh, that those things, particularly in the age of Trump, become it becomes normalized to totally uh, disarm the media by kind of doing Silicon Valley's version of fake news, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, which is. You know, saying that the media is just out to get us, and it's a decent tactic, but I'll just—it doesn't work long term. If you—if you, if you want to build relationships in business, and this is why I, I like covering the Valley, genuinely, like it is a kind of a community in a way. Like mm-hmm. people are kind of all watching each other. Um, I mean, the best relationships I have are, are the people that you can write a tough story about, and you know, they're gonna—they're gonna argue with you and fight with you, but like at the end of the day. You'll hear what they're coming from. They'll, you know, they'll see you're, where you're coming from. And if I'm covering that person or that company over and over, like, you know, I'm going to know that I can treat this person, you know, sort of upfront in the reporting, you know, give them a, you know, sort of go to them early for comment, you know, do the kind of things that reporters try to do with the subjects they're covering. In general, I just, I think it's, it's the debate is a little silly
0: you know it's it is kind of interesting i think i was talking to a friend of mine who was saying it's almost easier being a fringe news outlet these days because the expectation is that if you throw out a bunch of theories out there and just get one right one day you appear like a hero mm. whereas the traditional mo- more reputable publications are held to account you know for a 100% success rate yeah it's just a different different standard
2: yeah i mean i I like working at a relatively smaller outlet that's still staffed by people who, you know, the information was founded in 2013 by Jessica Lesson, who it was at the Wall Street Journal and, you know, our managing editor from the Wall Street Journal, our senior reporter from the Wall Street Journal. And, and you know, it's basically working at this like smaller, scrappier place that still comes at the world with sort of the expectation that everyone is reading us, you know, that that every executive is reading us and that every startup founder is reading us. And so it's, um, you know, that's a, it's a good amount of pressure because I think that sort of those eyeballs and that that readership like puts the onus on you to make sure yeah. your stuff is right.
1: I'm a subscriber, I have high expectations. Thank you. <laughs> we'll try to, try to keep uh, meeting those. Hey, um, Sunil, you had a question.
0: I well, I, no, 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 no. You, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. We have this thing today. We have this weird vibe. Yasha and I. We did one recording just prior to this. He's got uh, sickness stuff going on at home. Uh, you know, he's got
1: family stuff. you got to just work on family stuff. Life yeah, never stops. Totally, the way that it works. Um, so we just look at each other, and sometimes we just it's happening, uh-huh. and we know who's going to ask the next question. And mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't. Today we just talk over each other a little bit. We used to have a jar that we would pay each other in in the talkover jar. Mm-hmm. At least we had it conceptually. Maybe mm-hmm. it never happened in reality. <laughs> but we ask everybody one question, and I want to set it up for you. And I think Sunil might have a bonus question, but the one question we want to ask you is: We see you on Twitter, mm-hmm. so we know you're there. You're probably in other places as well. Yeah. Um, where do you spend your time most? And yeah. who's a recommended follow for our listeners?
2: Yeah, I definitely spend way too much time on Twitter. It's uh, it's not healthy. I, I yeah um, yeah I I've, you told me to prepare for this question. I totally forgot to. Um, <laughs> but I. I, I'm gonna sort of, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that you know, in the sort of conversation around like sort of San Francisco, um, the people who are covering it and are like in it the best are, are usually the folks who are who are on the ground and are truly local reporters. Like I'll cover San Francisco type of stories from a tech uh, sort of with a tech angle generally, but. I mean, some of my favorite reporters are Rachel Swan at the San Francisco Chronicle. She covers transportation. Um, and so if you like want to understand what's happening with Muni, Bart, ferry system, bike share, like she is the best person to follow. Yeah. Um, so is uh, actually her counterpart who kind of her rival reporter at the San Francisco examiner is named Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. Um, and he uh, also covers those issues. And then the, best political reporter in San Francisco is a guy named Joe Eskenazi. Uh, He writes for a small publication called Mission Local. He used to be at San Francisco Magazine and SF Weekly, I think. And he's just the kind of guy that every city needs, which is someone who's been covering City Hall for decades or years and just knows everyone and knows how to put the pieces together for you. Like, I'm not reading every little story that comes out of city hall but around election time or around kind of major moments and sort of the city's um sort of uh, sort of political uh season i i'm definitely reading joe
1: so. you can totally not prepare for any question i ask you by the way that was fantastic thank you yeah sure hey we really appreciate your time you have one more bonus question sunil
0: just really quick one i know you do a lot with transportation and mobility when are we what year is the tipping point for autonomous vehicles Oh, uh.
2: um, I think it's. I'm a. I'm a bit of an AV pessimist, so I'd say like.
1: Uh, twenty, sixty. I don't know. Twenty sixty. We'll we'll see you on the podcast <laughs> in twenty sixty or whatever <laughs> podcasts become in twenty sixty. Uh, the AR experience. Of uh, <laughs> I love it. This Corey, thank you so much for uh, spending the afternoon with us. We thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Dude. Um, do you think you're going to stay at an Airbnb now after that conversation? I mean, maybe he wasn't trying to sell us on it, but
0: I know I'm. I know I'm kind of like a, a weirdo for the for the Bay Area, but my my rationale I just I feel like if I'm going to pay for a place, I want you know I want it to be clean and all of this stuff, and I know hotels are are disgusting in their own right, but <laughs> at least I I live with the illusion of that. Uh, I, I've been really impressed with every
1: reporter and really every person that's been attached to the information that we've had a chance to meet with here. There's something kind of special about the group of people that they've been bringing together to do smart reporting.
0: Yeah, uh, great great publication, great articles, but particularly Corey. I mean, uh, his insights on the housing stuff were, were pretty eye-opening for me. Yeah, I completely agree.
1: I I, in all sincerity, just didn't understand all the dynamics around an organization that size and some of these pressures that they face as an organization because of what they've done with their employees and the way that they've distributed equity. I think that's a really uh, interesting, important learning that's probably going to be applied to a lot of different organizations for people that have just come to the Bay Area and started working for them.
0: He was pretty non-committal about the book, but maybe after this podcast, you'll consider it. I think book to a podcast deal to a movie is
1: like the next
0: thing. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, but you have to get to
1: come on this this podcast right or something like that this is going to be the podcast that when somebody looks back in 20 years they're like that's how we broke the next big important movie for sure
0: if you like this podcast rate us five stars on wherever you're listening we really appreciate your support and we look forward to having you for our uh, next episode thanks for listening